This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. We're not trying to develop Kernza as a niche market crop. We're trying to develop Kernza as a, as a major crop that in the future would, uh, you know, substantially transform the landscapes. Welcome, everyone, to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Jason Fishbach, the agriculture agent up in Ashland and Bayfield County, and joined today uh, by Carl Dooley. Yes, Hi, Carl. Carl Dooley. I'm ag agent in Buffalo County, and it's uh, great to be on once again, Jason. A um, little different topic today than what we've been on. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about Kernza. This is a crop long in the making, and it's something that really has potential to transform our agricultural landscape. And we've got two great guests today to talk about it, uh, Colin Kirton at the University of Minnesota uh, in St. Paul, uh, and Valentin Picasso, who's at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. So let's just start with some introductions, um, who you are, a little bit of background, and how you're involved with Kernza right now. Uh, Colin, you want to go first? Uh, my name is Colin Curitan, and I work as a supply chain development specialist with the University of Minnesota's Forever Green Initiative uh, as part of the commercialization team uh, of that uh, of uh, Forever Green. And I'm essentially the supply side guy of that equation. So I work on siting of new production acreage and uh, supply chain development for the new crops and cropping systems we're developing, all of which are oriented toward uh, perennials and winter annual uh, crops that offer um, new economic opportunities and new environmental uh, uh, benefits. Valentin. I'm Valentin Picasso. I'm an assistant professor in the agronomy department in CALS in the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I work mainly uh, with forages and perennials and perennial grain systems and uh, adaptation to climate change and how we can make more resilient uh, cropping systems. And I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Great. So let's just get right into it. Um, the Kernza name or Kernza, what, what is it? It's, you know, I know it's intermediate wheat, wheatgrass, but tell me the background of, of um, Kernza, how it developed, what's being done to develop it, and, uh, and why? Why Kernza? Kernza is the first perennial rain crop in the world. Uh, it is a perennial grass that can be harvested for, for grain like wheat or barley. So uh, with, the, with, the, with the grain of Kernza, you can make a flour and, and bread and pasta and, uh, and you can also ferment it and make beer. Um, but at the same time, it's a, it's a forage crop, so you can harvest forage uh, at the same time as, as harvesting, the, harvesting the grain. And it's perennial, that means it grows year after year, and once you plant it, you can harvest it for many years uh, without the need of replanting, and therefore has a lot of environmental benefits in terms of soil health, uh, reduction of soil erosion, and, and, and cleaning water in, in our landscapes. So is Kernza an actual strain of intermediate wheatgrass that's been with a plant patent or is that a more generic branding for I don't know intermediate wheatgrass in general? 
So Kernza is, is actually the grain harvested from intermediate wheatgrass that has been improved and, uh, and bred for uh, increased uh, seed size and grain size. So Kernza is a trade name of the grain of this improved uh, intermediate wheatgrass. There's, um, so in, 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 in a way we use the name Kernza for, for you know, the harvest of the crop. Um, right now there has been new varieties, I mean the, the first variety of Kernza really released uh, has been from the University of Minnesota. It's called uh, Kernza Clear Water, that's the name of the variety. Uh, but Kernza is a more general name for, for the crop and for the grain harvested out of this crop. And Jason, I'll try to um, uh, follow up on that. Uh, Kernza is a trademark name that's owned by the Land Institute, which is based in Salina, Kansas. Um, and that trademark name is also associated with an identity preserve program, which essentially ensures that um, grain that is grown, handled, and sold within that uh, supply chain uh, meets those identity preserve standards um, so that you, you essentially know you're getting that high quality product that delivers those environmental services and growers can have some confidence in that chain. And so it's similar to other trademark name grains like Kamut um, that maybe you've heard of um, that's a, a niche or artisan grain that offers some distinct health or environmental benefits. Um, so everyone that is growing Kernza is licensed to do so by the Land Institute as the, the owners of that trade name uh, to ensure that they are uh, aligned with you know, the, the vision for Kernza and also the standards so that we don't have someone out there growing intermediate wheatgrass, uh, <laughs> unimproved variety, selling it as Kernza to try and get that, uh, that premium that is really based around those ecosystem services, right, for, for a large part, as well as, you know, a, a, new, a new artisan grain variety has some value in the marketplace, and we can get into that later. But um, uh, just, just wanted to clarify that um, the grain is associated with that, that trademark name and that identity preserved program. Maybe just one more step in the, in the, in the Kernza and the development or where it's from, where is the intermediate wheatgrass originally from? Is it a native to the United States? Is it from the Fertile Crescent, like it seems so many of our grains are, or? Uh, intermediate wheatgrass is a species that originated in uh, the Balkan area in Eurasia. Um, so, and it was introduced from Europe to the U.S. early 1900s as a, as a forage grass for uh, mainly for the West and for for rangelands, and so uh, it's not a native uh, grass from from here. It started being um, uh, domesticated as a perennial grain crop um, about uh, I think it was like in the early eight. 1980s or so by the um, Rodel Institute and then they, they, they did a first round of selection then they send the material to the Land Institute and at the Land Institute in, in Salina, Kansas they uh, started a, a more intentional uh, breeding program uh, and, um, and it's been already I mean the, the, the Kernza that, that we're growing now it's been through five cycles mm -hmm. of uh, selection and um, and then it also, uh, the material went to other places uh, like mm -hmm. the University of Minnesota who started uh, a, a big major program on, on breeding of, of Kernza too. And, and now they released the, the first variety. So how is adoption shaking out across the states given that there's so many, you know, that Kansas is in, in involved, Minnesota's involved, Wisconsin's involved. 
sometimes I hear there are some frictions across state lines. Is this developing Ooh. cohesively? Is there, how is this playing? Well, that's a loaded question there, Jason. Well, yeah, Ooh. Oh, what kind of friction? People people driving their uh, combines to the state line and going head to head or? Oh, the, the, the things I've heard. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I would actually say a couple things. First of all, we're still very, very early in this whole Kearns affair. And Valentin has been researching this a lot longer than I've been working on it. so. I love his perspective on the sort of arc of development, but we at the University of Minnesota released the very first official Kernza variety in August of 2019, right? So imagine like the first soybean crop released <laughs> variety, right? There, this is a long road we're going to walk. Um, that being said, we're seeing a lot of interest, right? So whenever, especially in this climate, there's new new um, new crop opportunity that either real or perceived is attached to a new market opportunity. You have some people that want to be first to go. You have a lot of people that don't want to miss the boat, right? So uh, I think one of our main challenges is right-sizing expectations uh, among growers that many think this is, this is ready to go. We have, you know, mass quantities of seed available. And we really don't. We, are, we went through our first year of commercial seed increase. So we have more seed than we've ever had before, um, but um, we can get into that later. But the first year we released about 5,000 pounds of seed, you know, it was enough to add like 500 acres total. <laughs> this year we have enough seed to, you know, maybe add 1,000 to 2,000 acres total. Uh, grand scheme of things, that's pretty small, but in Kernza World, right now there's only 2,000 acres of Kernza Worldwide. So we're at a, relatively speaking, we're at an inflection point where we may add 50 to 100% of commercially oriented acres. And, and that's the last thing I'll say is that a lot of acres up until now have been the sort of either pure research or hybrid research commercial. And now we're kind of transitioning to growers that really see this as a commercial production opportunity uh, and are really just in the early phases of that. Valentin, do you have anything you want to add about this kind of long arc that we're on? Yeah, well, um, as, as Colin was saying, uh, this has, to me, it's very unique, not, not only in the type of crop that, that it is, because it's perennial and, and, and a grain crop, uh, but, but really because of the collaboration and the synergy between different uh, universities and research institutes. I mean, I, we, we really work as a community together. We meet mm -hmm. every year. We discuss, you know, the challenges and the new research. And, and it's a really growing field of research, both in the area of, of production and agronomy and environmental services, but also in the area of, of marketing and supply chain and, and farmer involvement. So it's been really, uh, 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 motivating to me and really exciting to be part of this community uh, across states, across uh, and 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 also international. There's there's mm -hmm. a lot of interest uh, in in Europe, in South America, uh, mm -hmm. in in the development of of, of currency. Now, uh, having said that, it's also unique, I think, as a model, in the sense that we're not trying to convince everybody to grow currency right now. We're trying to grow at the same time. The, the knowledge and and the farmer base and the marketing and the and the and the demand so we're trying to to grow at the same time the supply and demand and that's that's what uh, the role of, of of calling and 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 all the other people involved it's because we don't want a lot of farmers trying something that we really don't know very well how to manage and then get stuck with them with the market 
that it's not work working or uh, we don't want like companies expecting a lot of grain when then it doesn't come so we, we've been doing a very i think unique effort of growing these two sides together there's a lot of demand for Kernza from the industry and and there's a lot of interest from the farmers and our role is to try to make that process of growing uh, across the states um in a in a sustainable manner really it yeah. seems to me this is, you know, we've we've done one of our podcasts on hemp, and it seems like the, the contrast here is pretty stark, right? Hemp was, let's face it, kind of a free-for-all, versus it sounds like with Kernza, it's much more intentional, much more strategic to build both the, uh, you know, to align the cart and the horse, align the markets and align the, the production, and recognizing, too, the, the strengths and weaknesses of Kernza and the, the limitations still that are there, I think, in terms of the agronomics and um, learning curve for growers, that kind of thing. But and um, and if you if you think about this, we are we're really uh, having this strategy because we are here for the long term. We're not trying to develop Kernza as a niche market crop. We're mm -hmm. trying to develop Kernza as a as a major crop that in the future would uh, you know substantially transform the landscapes. Okay, mm -hmm. so. Uh, we we want this to grow in a in a slow and sustainable manner. So uh, we're really hoping that you know in ten years, fifteen years, I don't know, twenty years. Uh, it's difficult to say when, but this would be another major crop like corn or soybeans or wheat or barley. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're not going for a for a small niche market, and and that's why um, when we ask the farmers, we we did a little bit of research to ask why are farmers growing currants at a few farmers who are growing currency right now. And, and we have a lot of farmers that, that the motivation is, you know, environmental and, and environmental consciousness, and they want to protect their soil and they want to provide ecosystem services and all that. But we also have a lot of farmers that are large farmers that are interested in the profit, that are interested in the, um, in, in the economic opportunity of this. And, and, and we really want this to be that, to be a, a major crop that, that it's both, um, good for the environment and good for the for the farmers and for the economy. I also wanted to, to just kind of contextualize here that this is what we think of as the leading edge of a portfolio of new crops, new perennials and winter annuals that as uh, Valentin said, within Forever Green Initiative, we are trying to move forward in, in the, the long history of the land grant university system of offering new crop opportunities that meet meet the, you know, the challenge of the day. And now we're stepping into the next uh, century, really thinking about these environmental challenges and also the sort of economic hollowing out of rural America. So how do we, how do we address both of those at the same time? We have to offer new, new economic opportunities that are also attached to new crops that have these benefits for soil, climate, water, et cetera. So um, to the point that the vision for this is not as a niche crop, right? Uh, Valentina, so you're, you're talking about, so you've got some pretty big uh, commercial partners on board, uh, Patagonia Provisions, General Mills. Can you talk more about that, those partnerships and what their vision is for this crop and why they're involved? Whether it's General Mills or anyone else, I think they have made, um, you know, public and strong uh, commitments around sustainability and climate change, for example. And I think a lot of the industry partners we talk to uh, in our commercialization team, we talk to regularly, they are looking for solutions that will help them meet those goals, right? Um, and so when new crops emerge that have the potential to both deliver an economic return, but also advance that 
uh, ecosystem service uh, aspect, I think they're very excited to support and also see a role in uh, basic research development and contribution. So I know that our work at the University of Minnesota would not be where it is. And probably at the Land Institute as well, wouldn't be where it is without the commitment and support of General Mills. We, we are extremely thankful and proud of the, of the small businesses that are local and that are really trying and experimenting and selling Kernza products. We also have here in Madison, you know, Madison Sourdough as a, as a bakery that, that has tried products with Kernza and, 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 and you can sometimes buy Kernza bread there. Uh, we have uh, Driftless Brewery in the, in the Driftless region in, in Southwest mm -hmm. Wisconsin, uh, producing Kernza beer. And, and there's a lot of small partners and we're very proud of them and, and very thankful of them. Um, at the same time, we're very proud to be partnering with large companies like General Mills or Patagonia into developing this for, for, the, for the long term. So, As we know, in the specialty crop or alternative crops world, we have this funding dilemma where, you know, I refer to it as the flywheel of agriculture mm -hmm. in that um, our, our big main crops, corn, soybeans, cows, um, command a lot of research dollars. The state legislature puts a lot of money uh, into their publicly funded universities to support those crops. And for good reason, those are well-established um, big crops that a lot of people depend on. Uh, and yet we have some challenges with those crops. And we also have other opportunities out there with different emerging crop species and things. And yet without an industry going to the legislature or to the university and saying, hey, we want you to work on Kernza, we want you to work on hemp, hazelnuts, hops, whatever, then the public sector can't really respond and provide funding for that stuff. And so that flywheel, it's so hard to siphon off even a little bit of resources to, to fund and do the development work on these new crops. So um, I'm fascinated how Kernza, because it seems like it's fairly well supported, well funded. Can you just talk briefly about how you did this? How 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 Kearns has been able to find the funding to get it as far as it has and, and what it sees going forward. Yeah, well, what I'd say, Jason, is uh, again to um, contextualize that Kearns for us here in Minnesota, University of Minnesota, is uh, on that leading edge of this larger portfolio of crops with under the umbrella of the Forever Green Initiative that has been able to, I think, uh, so far fairly successfully put forward a, a new vision of um, agricultural diversification and delivery of new crop opportunities with you know, um, those economic and environmental benefits. And Kearns is on the leading edge of that and that that um, program uh, is based here at the University of Minnesota, multi, multidisciplinary approach that spans breeding, agronomy, uh, environmental, um, environmental sciences, food science, and now commercialization and implementation. And so we've been able to go to the legislature, I think now for several rounds and been able to, through a multi-sector partnership that included growers, that included industry, that included consumers, that included environmental advocates, water quality advocates, and academics, all working on this together, have been able to go forward and make that ask. I also know that given the scale of what we're trying to do, like if you think about the development of other basic commodity crops over the years, it takes significant and sustained funding. So I would say uh, when we look at the investment has been fantastic, but we know it's gonna take so much more. Um, and and last, last comment is that we're starting to turn the corner on having some escalating funding from the state here in Minnesota has gotten some of these crops to the point 
where you've been able to garner significant federal investment just in the last year or so uh, through, you know, multi-state NIFA grants, USDA uh, investments, not just on, um, I'm thinking across the portfolio. So in hazelnuts uh, with the Scree program um, and with the winter annual oil seeds, Pennycrest and Winter Camelina also kind of turned a corner with getting their first major significant federal funding. And so that's really where we're headed is this diversified portfolio of private, philanthropic, local, state, and federal funding is going to need to be flowing in simultaneously in a sustained and increasing manner to really get the landscape scale impact we, we want to have. Colin, the Forever Green in Initiative, that's a, a grant program, f or not, well, I mean, no, the initiative's bigger, but the funding from the legislature, that's a grant program that's only eligible to a certain suite of crops. Is that how it works? Yeah, so, so my understanding, I'm just a very small part of Forever Green. There's 80 researchers at the University of Minnesota and beyond in these uh, cross-sector teams, um, or, sorry, cross-departmental teams and also cross-sector um, that uh, most of that funding historically uh, has been for the research side. So they've appropriated escalating certain uh, number of millions. I could look up the, the, the figure. Um, Potentially uh, up to 10 million this fiscal year. Yes, right? I think our, our ask the last few years has been in the 10 million range. I think last year was in the four or five million range. I, I should know that number. I'll look it up before this interview is over. But last year, the first uh, allocation was made in the amount of half a million dollars to be spent over five years on implementation. And we're focusing that first round of implementation funding on the commercial scale up and success of MN Clearwater, our first currency variety. But we're already seeing a need to come behind that with implementation resources for crops like winter camelina, uh, which is a winter annual oil seed that can fit into our existing agricultural landscape and really enhance it through the addition of a winter oil seed. So, um, uh, so yeah, just, just sharing that the state's appropriations have now been several legislative cycles running in escalating amounts and have started to bridge into the implementation space, which is quite exciting. Got it. Valentin, anything like the Forever Green Initiative in Wisconsin? What's the support like for your work? So one, one thing um, uh, I, I wanted to add to this uh, story about the funding really is uh, you, were, you were asking, you know, how uh, was it possible to secure so much uh, funding for Kernza, which we all know it's, it's not enough, of course. Um, and, and I think we have to have a, a, a historical perspective here. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. The Land Institute started 40 years ago uh, with, a, with a clear vision of uh, believing that we can have an agriculture system that doesn't destroy the environment or the economy. And, and realizing that you know, the current agricultural system has a lot of problems in terms of environmental, degradation, but also social and, and economic uh, uh, limitations for farmers and consumers. Uh, and they started with this, this vision of how we can develop an alternative and an alternative that has two features. One is we need more perennials. We need more perennial cover in order to give environmental services. But at the same time, we need diversification. We cannot have one or two crops dominating the landscape for economic and environmental reasons. And so there were a lot of crops that were tested and there are a lot of crops that are being developed. Kernza is just one out mm -hmm. of many uh, 
uh, there's there's perennial sunflower, there's perennial sorghum, there's perennial rice, there's uh, legumes mm -hmm. that are also being considered. So there's a suite, a suite of, of different crops that have been tried over the past. Some of them didn't work and were uh, uh, not included anymore in the research program. And there are others that are uh, earlier in the development and in the future we will be able to have other more perennial crops and and as part of that vision you know there was the consistent talking to donors and funders and and trying to convince you know to put money on this over 40 years really and and that allowed for uh, programs like the like the fellows program where uh, graduate students from different universities you were one of them I was one of them uh, were trained into this new alternative uh, way of, of, of developing new crops and, mm -hmm. and diversification of agriculture. And now all that uh, people are in uh, uh, research positions, faculty positions, extension positions, and, and trying to do, develop this research and applying to grants in, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate to get, get funding from NIFA, from, from USDA, from SARE, uh, from really, uh, uh, funding programs that are funding uh, agriculture in general um, really to to develop this okay and so um, I guess I wanted to point out here there's there's no magic bullet Kernza is not the solution to all the problems it's just one piece of a much larger puzzle much uh, mm -hmm. and, and, a, and a very long-term puzzle that that really is trying to you know transform agriculture in a way that it's uh, good for the environment, good for the people, good for the farmers, good for society, and mm -hmm. uh, and 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 really has been a, a long-term investment. Uh, but also now, you know, as as Colin was saying, you know, state agencies, uh, federal agencies, and 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 that are really funding this, which which is which is fantastic. Yeah, that helps. Just to push a little bit on the Wisconsin's contribution, have they has the state um, taken an interest you know at the legislative level or legislature so there there has been interest we we haven't got to the point of of like minnesota in terms of of actual uh you know commitment for the long term of funding uh but there's been uh, a lot of interest from the, the department of, of agriculture and, and and trade and consumer protection there's been a lot of interest from nrcs and we're working closely with with nrcs to include uh, the uh, Kernza as, a, as another uh, crop that can be uh, uh, supported by some of NRCS programs like EQIP. Um, so the, there is interest and, and, and there is uh, support. We haven't got to the point of like commitment of funding, but I think we're getting there. Uh, we're, we're working towards that. Great. Awesome, guys. Um, so let's talk agronomics. Colin, you mentioned this briefly. So uh, and Carl, jump in because I'm asking too many questions. But no uh, you mentioned this briefly. I'm a grower. I'm interested. Uh, how do I get seed? How do I get started? Yeah, yeah. So we have a, a system set up where there's a very simple online uh, application, 2020 Kernsey Growers application, where uh, you know you share your basic information, acreage you'd like to plant, um, and we've got a number of uh, sort of uh, checks in there, like. You know, do you have small grains planting and harvest equipment? Do you have post-harvest storage? What's your experience selling into food grade markets? We, we've set a certain range of um, priorities and requirements for Kernza growers that we, in partnership with the Land Institute, go through each of those applications and usually call each grower directly and engage with them one-on-one, -on -one, talk about their interest in Kernza, 
Um, you know, this is a perennial grain crop. So we want to make sure that people are, are, will be committed with this limited amount of seed to produce a stand for multiple years. Uh, most are, but also, you know, like last year, for example, we had a lot of people come forward that said, hey, I have, you know, six prevent plant acres here and four there and 20 over there. I'll throw Kernza in. It'll be a good option, right? Like, and, and our sense is that that's probably not the best way to commercialize a brand new crop. So we, we got to make sure that our first wave of growers are really going to maximize the likelihood of success for the new crop. And that's the whole purpose of the vetting approach. Uh, chances are, though, when, when growers have gone through that whole process, if they're really committed to this crop and they think they're a good fit, we are excited to see people, you know, give it a try and to support them to do that. Um, and so there, there aren't many rejections coming out of that process, <laughs> um, but it's just a process so that we don't, you know, not a knock to hemp by any means, but I'm not sure we want to become the Wild West um, uh, like hemp has in many ways. So uh, you fill out the 2020 Crimson Grower application, chances are myself and or someone at the Land Institute will have a conversation with you directly. Then we would, you know, approve your request. You would get licensed um, concurrently, pretty efficiently, um, you know, can do it online. Um, for the Kernza trademark program and also for the, um, the Kernza, the MN Clearwater variety through the University of Minnesota. And then we are now working uh, with uh, a contracted seed distribution partner that cleaned all of our seed last year, Minnesota Native Landscapes, they're based in Foley. Um, and once, once a sale is executed, we would, um, you know, send over a note to Minnesota Native Landscapes that, you know, they're set to pick up their certain quantity of seed. Um, and then the last thing there to mention is that, you know, that conversation phase earlier is, is important to make sure, you know, growers, we talk through with growers, their row spacing, their, you know, um, things like that, that determine how much seed they're going to need to buy, what's their acreage, what's their uh, row spacing, and also we we're drawing from a number of different seed lots that have different germination rates, for example, all of which inform how much seed you're going to need to buy. So. We're not at a point yet where you just go online and order your amount, <laughs> amount of seed. There's a bit of a process to it, but um, basically it's apply, talk to us, get approved, get licensed, buy seed. Takes now, it's the same process if I'm from Wisconsin, do I go through Valentine or do I just go to the, the Kernza website or doesn't it matter? Uh, it doesn't matter at the moment. Um, we do have... I should say it doesn't matter the application process, but we do for the University of Minnesota's variety, we have a, a preference to, we're essentially holding space for Minnesota growers based on, you know, our state funding, uh, for example, has, you know, required that we deliver these new crop opportunities to Minnesota growers first and foremost. That said, we don't want to hog all the seed, you know, we got to share the wealth, but we do want to make sure that we're not developing new crops and sending all the seed elsewhere. Uh, so we sort of have a preference for Minnesota growers. Um, but we'll, we'll take applications from, from anywhere. And that, that has actually been one of the early sort of, one of the things that might encourage us to say either no or just not yet is, you know, I, we're getting requests from Alberta, from all over Europe, from the Dakotas, from Montana, and we just don't have enough seed to supply the commercial acreage that some of those guys say, I want to plant 500 acres of currency. You know, right now, I think the largest commercial, um, turns a field I know of is like 140 acres uh, and most are under 100. So this is not a, um, a crop at scale yet. It's not really, um, 
it's yeah yeah we're at we're at a much smaller scale we also have a acreage minimum of 20 acres we find that if you're growing less than 20 acres of a row crop <laughs> like a, a grain crop chances are it's not going to be necessarily a priority for you it might kind of be at the um you know it might be at the bottom of the priorities list and then also the costs tend to escalate as you try to you try to move a six acre plot of kernza and you got to ship it around three times and process it and the the, the processing and supply chain costs relative to the volume really makes it less of a economically viable opportunity so that that gets into all these supply chain logistics and costs which which is all at play here so so and is the market only organic or is the the market both conventional and organic or well right now um uh, production wise uh organic management practices are required not certified organic it's just that we don't have any labeled herbicides or pesticides yet those variety trials are underway uh, so right now, certified organic is not required. We do see the market trending a bit organic, but we also know there's people waiting in the wings to get in the game until they feel like there's, um, uh, a, uh, as they say, more tools in their tool belt. So spring seeded, fall seeded, um, what's recommended for uh, following crops? Can you follow small grains in the fall? Can you, should, you know, should you be following a legume to give it a nitrogen bump? What's recommended right now for the seeding? So think about Kernza as a, uh, in, in terms of a grain, it's similar to winter wheat. So it has to go through a winter before it can flower and produce seed. And, and therefore, we recommend planting in the fall and, uh, and, and let it go through the first winter and you'll get a better establishment and, um, and then you can harvest the next summer. Uh, in, in the upper Midwest, in terms of planting dates, uh, we recommend, you know, mid to end of August and early September at the latest, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it has to come after a crop that you can harvest uh, before that. Uh, so uh, you could, you could uh, um, plant currency after uh, a small grain, uh, oats or barley or, or wheat. Um, or you can we could plant kernza after uh, maybe an alfalfa field that's that's three four years old, um, uh, or I mean the the, the soybean or the <clears throat> or the corn. Usually, you know, you have to harvest much much later, so you might have to go through a through a cover crop and then and then plant it uh, the the next year. Um, you can plant kernza in the spring. It is possible. You can plant it. Uh, the, the thing is, because uh, it, for the establishment, during that first year, if you plant it in the spring, it would be, um, you know, like a, like a grass without producing any seed. And so it's not very competitive with the weeds in, during that spring. And that's why uh, when you plant it in the fall, it would be much more competitive uh, uh, the next spring. With the with the width, so we we've, we've had much more success with with fall establishments of of Kernza. Is uh, winter hardiness an issue in the Upper Midwest? Can I grow it in northern Wisconsin? Yeah, it can grow in northern Wisconsin. Uh, it winter hardy has not been an issue so far. I mean, it's a it's a it's a cool season grass, uh, tolerates very well the cold, and also tolerates quite well the the drought. It was one of the questions originally we had is like we knew intermediate wheatgrass did very well in the West where it's drier. And uh, we didn't know how we would do in, in more uh, humid uh, climates like here, but it, uh, it's, it's been working pretty well. I mean, we've both in Minnesota and, and Wisconsin, uh, we've have been growing this for you know five or 10 years and, and, 
we have good success in terms of, of the of the soils and the and the climate. Valentin, you mentioned maybe following um, small grains, uh, oats or barley. Do we are we concerned about any of the same disease issues though with the uh, with the small grain crops? Uh, potentially, it could be, but but intermediate wheatgrass and currants are very uh, diverse in terms of the of, of the genes, and uh, they have uh, resistant to you know. Uh, all the diseases that, that we know. Um, and actually intermediate wheatgrass has been used in the past as a source of resistance genes to other crops like wheat or, or uh, and so, uh, so far we haven't seen any uh, disease problems with uh, intermediate wheatgrass. That doesn't mean that in the future when the crop is more expanded and, and there's more area, there might come. Uh, so far the only, um, the only disease we've seen is ergot, usually in the in the borders of the field, uh, but but it hasn't been uh, a big issue. Uh, of course, just like wheat, uh, don is something that we need to measure and 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 control for the marketing. Uh, but so far, it hasn't been a, a big a big issue. Uh, Colin, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say I would encourage everyone to not, as Valentin said, to not necessarily think of Kernza as like a, you know, a magic bullet or a super crop. We did see some issues with, with Don or Bobotoxin last year that had a, a couple lots kicked out of the year, uh, out of the food grade system, or they, they essentially didn't meet spec. But uh, I think that was not an uncommon occurrence for a lot of small grains. It was really, really rough year on uh, the whole, you know, wheat crop as well. Um, so it does involve some risks, uh, and, and for current growers, they'll like, an, like other small grains trying to reach food grade markets. That's, that's why we have that requirements or strong preference for either on farm post harvest storage or a local post harvest storage solution, because you'll need to store that crop, dry it down, send in samples. We are working to, you know, develop a good system to do that so that they can test for vomitoxin, aflatoxin, et cetera. Um, and then hold that crop until it needs to move. Um, so we, we saw a bit, of, a bit of an issue there last year, but not unlike, I think, any other small grain. Okay, so we've got the, the crop established in the fall. What do we do about nitrogen? Fall applications, spring, uh, can we underseed it in the spring? Um, like frost seeding with uh, clover or something? What's recommended for, for feeding it? Absolutely. So. Uh, the first thing uh, we have to, to consider is Kernza is a dual use crop, okay? You want to harvest the grain and you want to harvest and utilize the forage because it does produce a lot of forage, okay? So when, when you're thinking about how to manage this crop, you need to be thinking, how do I maximize grain and at the same time forage and forage quality, right? So the, the research we've, we've done, um, uh, Basically, the, the management that we're recommending right now based on, on, on the, again, only a few years of research on agronomic management, okay, we don't have like 20 years or 100 years of information like in other crops, right, is um, you establish in the fall, uh, we have been doing uh, uh, split applications of spring uh, nitrogen and fall nitrogen. Um, we again we don't know what's the optimal timing really in in terms of whether split applications or just fall or just spring we are doing research on that but but so far we have uh good success with you know uh, applying like 40 pounds of uh 
uh, nitrogen in the spring and another 40 in the, in the fall, more or less. It doesn't require a lot of nitrogen um, uh, compared to other, to other crops. And, um, and of course, it depends on your soil type and, and location and what was the previous crop and, and all sorts of things. But it, in, in jelly, it requires little amount of nitrogen. Um, we would, if we do this, the spring uh, nitrogen application would be at green up in the spring. Um, then you let it grow uh, during the spring and, and summer. And by the end of July uh, or early August, uh, you're harvesting the grain. For harvesting the grain, you can either combine directly like you would do for, for grass seed or for, for, or for grain. Um, it, there's there's uh, the, the, the combine you just need to, you know, tweak the, the, the settings of the combine to, to, uh, to be able to harvest the seed. It's, it's, a, it's a lighter seed compared to other, other grains, uh, but it's not very different from, from grass seed. So there's, there's equipment to, to do that. Um, and then we normally, right after harvesting the grain, which, uh, you know, the crop gets like five feet tall. So when you harvest the grain, the first two feet, then you still have like, like three feet of, of forage. Um, available and so we normally bale that forage uh, which has a quality of a little bit better than wheat straw I mean it's still green uh, but it's very high fiber um, so you can we've, we've done feeding trials with done you can you can use it for bedding in in dairy systems you can you can feed it to cattle uh, and and we've uh, whether heifers or, or or beef cows for instance uh, we have done uh, trials where 50% 50, uh, 50% of the diet is current straw and the other 50% is haylage and and they gain weight and and without a problem so it can be fed to to animals uh, and then after that in the fall it regrows um, we do a, a fall a nitrogen application and 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 let it go um, we can either graze it in the fall or harvest uh, harvest another forage harvest uh, at the end of the fall uh, and that's really high quality forage um, and um, and then the next year it, it continues again I mean in spring you can harvest forage in the spring early in the spring in the in the second year um, and, and then let it go to seed harvest the grain harvest forage so wow. when you think about which farmers are ideal for growing currency well you want somebody uh, a farmer who knows how to grow grain and can utilize forage or can sell the forage to a neighbor so uh, because the forage is an important part of of this uh, of, of this crop um valentine so, you said that it was still green that bottom three feet uh, so the crop is still green when you're harvesting the grain is that correct yes yes and how so, do you tell when to harvest well, uh, it's it's tricky because uh, it's not only, I mean, part of it, it's green, part of it, it's going to be really mature and part of it, it's already going to be shattering. Okay, so you have to find that that happy medium there. The breeders, one of the main goals right now, other than increasing grain yield, it's also reducing shattering. So that, that uh, you know, it's not such a, such a problem, but... Um, Normally, I mean, you would want, you know, uh, at least 50% uh, of, the, of the seed heads, you know, turning uh, brownish color and, and, and you can do the, the, the thumb test to see if the, if the grain is, is filled. Um, but it's, it, it's, uh, it's risky 
and and it and we haven't figured exactly and we don't have the information exactly what's the optimal timing for harvesting i mean again all these are research questions that that researchers are are targeting and and we're sure. we're looking into uh but you know that's why i'm saying i mean usually end of july early august when you know kind of half of the of the field it's turning uh brownish that's when you would uh you would harvest uh, there will still be green leaves on the bottom so you know you have to be brave to run your combine onto that but you know it it, it works um uh yeah the the uh, how, how perennial is it do we expect this to go two three four years is what about um so two questions that and what happens with all of our other c3 grasses does you know does brome and quack and and everything timothy start to move in is that what'll end it as a crop stand or is is the crop just kind of burn itself out like alfalfa eventually so uh in terms of the intermediate wheatgrass as a as a as a grass and and current size no different it can survive for 20 years 30 years i mean you, we've seen thick stands of intermediate wheatgrass uh that that don't thin out okay so the crop itself it's it's very perennial okay but but the the plant itself it's it's very perennial now the grain production of that stand, uh, our experience is that it it goes down in the second and third and 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 maybe fourth year. Um, so we've seen uh, that the yield of grain really declines, you know, from the first year to the second to the second to the third, and and we think that that's not because the plants die, but actually because of of overcrowding of plants. Okay, mm -hmm. there's too many tillers, too many plants, and so um, there's very little uh, uh, resources put into the reproduction and a lot into vegetative growth. So one of the main research questions we have right now is how to think those stands and how to uh, continue the, you know, the, 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 the production over time of the grain. So right now, I mean, the information we have is, well, you can establish currents, uh, harvest grain, two years, three years, and maybe after that you can use it as a pasture, or you can turn it into your rotation and go back to some other crops. Um, but again, we have only have long-term information for only five years, really. And so, you know, more research is needed to figure out whether uh, there, there's some kind of uh, rejuvenation that we can do and, and, and that. And we've thinking, we've, we've tried different things. We've tried burning the stands like uh, prairie grasses, or we've, we've tried uh, tillage uh, or herbicide applications to thin the stand. And, and we're, we're really looking into those uh, um, um, experiments right now. I mean, we, we don't have a, a clear recommendation, but... but mm. uh, we think that that the stand can be rejuvenated and, and we can maintain uh, uh, yields in the future. But that, but that's why we still insist this is a dual-use crop. You want to use the grain and you want to use the forage because there might be years that you know you just harvest only forage and that's fine, and you manage in a different way. And other years that you harvest mostly grain. Any progress on finding a companion crop for intercropping? You know, a legume in there yeah. or something. So uh, yeah, you, you ask about the, the, the intercropping with legumes. Um, we've tried alfalfa, it works pretty well as a, as a companion legume for, for currenza. Um, we've tried red clover. Uh, here in Wisconsin, red clover, it's very competitive and, and at, the, at the rates that we've tried it, it, it ends up 
um, you know, dominating uh, the, the the stand in the in the third year, second third year. Uh, Cura clover, same thing. I mean, they're 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 good legumes that can uh, be mixed with with kernza. They all have some penalty on the on the grain yield, about like 10, 15, 20 percent of reduction in grain yield, but certainly an increase in forage production and forage quality. So there's a trade-off there. Um, when when you have the 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 kernza monoculture you get like 20% more grain. When you have the currency with the alfalfa or the currency with the red clover, you have uh, less grain, but you have much more forage and much, much better forage quality. And what kind of grain yields are we starting out at? You're talking about a deduction by maybe 20% if we put uh, a companion crop with, or it goes down over years. What, what is our optimum and then what can we expect? Yeah, so uh, in terms of, of research uh, yields, um, the uh, the what we've seen is like around you know 800 to a thousand pounds per acre in the experimental stations uh, in the first year and then going down maybe half of that in the second year and maybe like you know 200 300 in the third year on farmers fields uh colin maybe you're feeling there but but mm -hmm. i think it's around you know between 300 and 500 pounds to the acre yeah, I can I can share some more numbers here. So in our 2019 harvest of these uh, in, this improved variety in Clearwater, we had an average yield of um, in um, production production fields of uh, about 500 pounds per acre. Uh, we saw a range of anywhere from 350 to up toward 800, uh, and that 800 pounds per acre was a certified organic field, so it wasn't you know due to any particular amendment or um, conventional treatment. Um, and I wanted to chime in here on the economics of all this. So uh, I'm, I'm an economist by training, not an agronomist. So you don't want your agronomic advice from me, but I've tried to develop some um, supply chain budgets and enter crop enterprise budgets to put, put some numbers to all this and sort of the economic benefits of growing Kernza. Um, because I'm sure if any listeners listening and hears something like a 500 pounds per acre or something, <laughs> you kind of, you know, your, your eyes glaze over or something like that. But I, I want to put in context the value of this grain relative, relative to other grains and how it's seen in the marketplace as a differentiated product offering these ecosystem services. So on the way at the end of the supply chain on the retail end, we've seen conventional grains sell for anywhere from three to five pound, dollars per pound, right? So when you think of like a, a bushel of wheat, you know, at the farm gate sells for like $4 a bushel, we're talking about this grain as, you know, $4 a pound. Um, so that, that just puts in, context, this trade-off between like the value of the grain versus the yield is an important consideration. For certified organic grain, we've seen retail from anywhere from $5 a pound to $7 a pound. You can go now online to um, uh, Sprout Labs or Perennial Pantry. Sprout Labs uh, it was selling um, wholesale for a while and you can look at their pricing on there for um, certified organic and non-certified organic. And you can also go on to Perennial Pantry and uh, purchase, um, uh, advanced purchase. There will be selling um, grain and flour, and they're looking at 14 ounce bags for around uh, 9.50 a pound. So kind of like, you know, like a Bob's Red Mill, you know, niche or artisan grain, uh, you know, pretty comparable. Now on the grower economic side, okay, in looking at the production costs, we usually see about a year one production costs of 300 to 350 dollars per acre in the crop enterprise budget. This being a perennial, um, 
those production costs usually drop by about a third in years two and three. So you already have a pretty manageable production cost on a, on a per acre basis that then you know declines by a third in years two and three. Um, Valentin's comment about the importance of dual use is very much true. So we see growers that are, you know, um, if you're just managing for grain only, you, you have the potential to make a profit. Uh, there's also a lot of risk involved in relying the whole affair on just that grain harvest. So uh, if you're growing for grain only, we think you can, you know, break even or better. Um, but your revenue potential is significantly improved if you're taking the forage. Um, uh, the research shows that there's just a lot of biomass out there of you know average or higher than average quality. So with, uh, I think I'm seeing here, Valentin, correct me if I'm wrong, about three tons uh, of straw per acre per year, um, given your kind of standard forage prices, you have the potential to just you know, uh, cover your cost of production on forage alone and then you get a grain crop on top of that and it's gravy and it's a premium grain product, right? So we've seen people, you know, uh, break even or some people have, you know, their stands have failed, they haven't made it to market. We've also seen people who have, you know, netted $1,000 an acre. You know, if they had that hot, real high, now don't everybody go out and plant Kernza, <laughs> but that's for a high yielding certified organic grain crop with a good negotiated price, you know? I stood on the side of a certified organic grain truck last summer that had 13,000 pounds taken straight out of the field that was destined for a custom, or sorry, a specialty grain um, buyer that was, you know, willing to pay for it. Um, and it was a high quality product that met spec and that grower negotiated a good price. So there's a lot of components there other than just producing the grain. You got to be marketing your product. It has to be high quality, certified organic plot, but that's the range, right? So anybody who's interested in the economics of this, it, it's, it's kind of hard to go through right now um, remotely, um, but I have an integrated supply chain budget that lays out all the costs in the system, not just production costs, but all of those processing steps, the transportation uh, with variable assumptions, uh, variable assumptions for grain yields, forage yields, forage pricing, grain pricing, you can plug and play and look at what your revenue scenario might be. If at some point, right, that so you know a couple dollars or four five dollars a pound, that's still pricing when it's a specialty niche crop. But if we're talking millions of acres of Kernza and we're supplying nationally branded food products through General Mills, right and now we're in the dollars per bushel range, I would assume mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. like that. Um, is there? So I've read that the Kernza has about a fifth the production of wheat, for example. Um, mm -hmm. Is there? Uh, is there enough room within the intermediate wheatgrass genome to get yields higher? Or is this going to be a model that's always going to depend on the forage crop once you get to scale to have a market for that crop? In terms of, of, the, of the breeding, we haven't seen any slowing down of the breeding progress uh, over, this, over the, 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 the time. And so uh, when you compare with the first cycle of selection, the grain yield has gone, I think, tripled already. Uh, and, and it's continued to grow. So we expect that in 10 years, maybe the grain yields would be, you know, doubled what they are now or, or, or even higher. So it's, it's hard to say, but we, we envision that in the long term, the yield of, of this uh, perennial grain crop would be much higher compared to what it is right now. Uh, that's one thing. Now, um, I, I think that forage would still be uh, an important part and, and, and that's actually good. I think the, 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 
the systems that integrate grain and livestock uh, are are you know more sustainable in general and so the ability to to utilize the forage biomass it's going to continue to be uh, important i think um, not that maybe it won't uh, be needed for the profitability maybe i don't know um, but but it would certainly be important for you know also the ecosystem services and and the environment and, and so on uh i'll i'll amend that too and that's to um say, Jason, your question about kind of pricing over time. And I think as uh, efficiencies and scale increase, it might be reasonable to see prices come down a bit. But the idea is that also yields are gaining on that. But I, I want to go out on a limb here a little bit <laughs> and say that we, I think we need to be careful about making this another race to the bottom commodity. And we're working with a lot of growers on what the best way to do that might be. And it, it might be, you know, the economic model of a, you know, a currency growers cooperative that can really manage supply with demand. I think one of the challenges is even if you successfully commercialize a new crop, you know, the history of agriculture is such that we get on the supply treadmill, overproduce, prices crash, and then growers are back in the same position. So what do we do? Um, to maintain value for the grower, deliver you know um, economic sustainability, not just these ecosystem services that the public is going to benefit benefit from. A little bit of a step back, though. Let's let's talk about the seed itself. Is uh, first of all, there's a lot of interest in gluten. Is kerns of gluten free? Second of all, uh, does it have to be dehulled before you can do anything with it? Or uh, because there's a lot of interest, I think, in some of these um, new crops. Uh, Regenerative crops, however we want mm -hmm. to state it, in the in the small bakery, the home bakery, the the yep. specialty crop um, idea, and does Kernza fit into that, or do you have to have lots mm -hmm. of infrastructure, a dehauler, et cetera, to to make yeah. this work on your in your in your system? Yeah, so Kernza is lower lower gluten, but not no gluten, um, higher protein grain, um, which is of interest to a lot of people. Uh, it does require, at the time being, uh, requires dehulling. Uh, making a rapid increase in free threshing, uh, in the rate of free threshing grain. So I think right now we're somewhere around like 50 to 60% free threshing with these varieties coming out. And I think, you know, pretty rapidly progressing toward what we could call a free threshing grain. There's also people working on malting kernza such that I think you might see breeding programs go in a direction where, you, you know, for some niche uses, you might want to see that hull stay on. <laughs> and in others, you know, you might want to see um, that hull come off in the, in the harvest process. Um, so it does require uh, a bit of processing now, which is why um, we're trying to do that thoughtfully and carefully, you know, in this kind of cluster model, which I haven't talked much about at all. But uh, there, there are a lot of costs involved. Um, and just to reemphasize, very early days in this, this whole affair. <laughs> so. I, I would like to um, make a plug for a couple of resources that are online. Um, one is uh, the website kernza.org, yes. where you can uh, learn more about the story of this crop, but also uh, connect with the Kernza network, which are the growers, where are they located, uh, which are the different partners, uh, research and, and commercialization and industries that are working with Kernza. So uh, for farmers and for consumers and for businesses who are interested, um, all, there's a lot of information there. Um, I also want to mention there's the uh, and the website of the Land Institute. You can access 
all the videos of the Currenza uh, conference 2020, which happened like a month ago. And so uh, there's, there's presentations on research and agronomics, on breeding and commercialization. There's presentation from farmers who are growing Currenza right now. Uh, so it's a really good resource to learn more uh, for, uh, for people interested in, in this topic. Is there a grower association or something forming or growers cooperative or whatever? Yeah, so right now we're co-facilitating with a couple of grower leaders, uh, the potential development of a growers cooperative. Um, there's also in development more, I would say, based or being driven by the Land Institute, but also in partnership with all of us, um, a Kernza Business Association. So we're starting to see the development of these these sorts of entities that, like for any other major crop, would have a growers association. That there, there may be cooperatives within that uh, or underneath that. Uh, so uh, we actually have our next uh, grower uh, cooperative and marketing call this this week. So we're having those regularly, and um, so we, I think we now have what you could start to call a critical mass of growers that recognize they need to have an organized marketing strategy to bring the grain to market. And uh, I wanted to also along Valentine's lines, uh, plug a, a few resources here that, that we have access to that anybody who wants to get in touch with me. Uh, we have a, um, a, a Google Drive folder with uh, resources for growers, which includes the grower's guide, uh, includes the seeding rate table, includes all of the notes and recorded calls we've had with growers up until now. There's probably 10 to 20 hours of grower calls on there with uh, still notes. Um, and a number of other resources, recorded presentations, slide decks, agronomic best practices, things of that nature. Um, anybody who wants to get in touch with me can do so um, at, at uh, C-U-R-E-0012, cure0012 at umn.edu. I just want to say to both you, uh, congratulations. I, I know you're both kind of standing on, and we all are shoulders of those that came before us on these projects, but... Man, you guys are rocking it. You guys are doing such great work and it's so fun to see, you know, to me, the essence of public institutions and research being on, pardon the pun here, but the cutting edge, you know, and trying to develop new strategies and new crops and new options for growers. It's just awesome. So thanks so much for your time. Carl, any yeah. last questions? Oh, once again, thank you. Um, I look forward to seeing, um, I know this year field days are probably not going to be happening, but uh, look forward to taking a look at the crops again. Uh, look forward to more releases. Other, I know you have Clearwater. I'm assuming there's others in the pipeline and uh, be excited to put some of those in some of our plots and take a look at them. Yeah, well, I wanted to thank you guys for, for covering this, branching out beyond the H's <laughs> um, to look at Kernza. Um, thanks for having us on. And there will actually be a, it's, it's up in the air, whether it will be a virtual or in-person field day out in uh, Madison, Minnesota, um, out in western, <laughs> western Minnesota at the A-Frame Farm in uh, July. I don't have the date right in front of me, but I think that's being hosted in partnership with Moses. So keep an eye out for that. Um, and yeah, thanks again for, for covering this today. And I feel like there's so much more we could have talked about. There's a whole uh, cluster development strategy here in Minnesota, We're investing in three different regions, but maybe we can save that for the next conversation. Thank you very much. It was great to be here with you and, and, and thank you for the invitation and looking forward to more, more discussions on this and other topics.
brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.